Chapter 5, Part 5 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dini Stein, Kelowna, Canada. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. By Alexandre Dumas, Chapter 5, Part 5. Lord Ruthven was both a warrior and a statesman, and at this moment his dress savored of the two professions. It consisted of a close coat of embroidered buff leather, elegant enough to be worn as a court undress, and on which, if need were, one could buckle a cuirass for battle. Like his father, he was pale. Like his father, he was to die young, and even more than his father, his countenance wore that ill-omened melancholy by which fortune-tellers recognize those who are to die a violent death. Lord Ruthven united in himself the polished dignity of a courtier and the inflexible character of a minister, but quite resolved as he was to obtain from Mary Stuart, even if it were by violence, what he had come to demand in the regent's name, he nonetheless made her, on entering, a cold and respectful greeting, to which the queen responded with a courtesy. Then the steward drew up to the empty armchair a heavy table on which he had prepared everything necessary for writing, and at a sign from the two lords he went out, leaving the queen and her companion alone with the three ambassadors. Then the queen, seeing that this table and this armchair were put ready for her, sat down, and after a moment, herself breaking this silence more gloomy than any word could have been. My lords, said she, you see that I wait. Can it be that this message which you have to communicate to me is so terrible that two soldiers as renowned as Lord Lindsay and Lord Ruthven hesitate at the moment of transmitting it? Madame, answered Ruthven, I am not of a family, as you know, which ever hesitates to perform a duty, painful as it may be. Besides, we hope that your captivity has prepared you to hear what we have to tell you on the part of the secret council. The secret council? said the queen. Instituted by me? But what right does it act without me? No matter. I am waiting for this message. I suppose it is a petition to implore my mercy for the men who have dared to reach to a power that I hold only from God. Madame, replied Ruthven, who appeared to have undertaken the painful role of spokesman, while Lindsay, mute and impatient, fidgeted with the hilt of his long sword. It is distressing to me to have to undeceive you on this point. It is not your mercy that I come to ask. It is on the contrary, the pardon of the secret council that I come to offer you. To me, my lord, to me, cried Mary. Subjects offer pardon to their queen. Oh, it is such a new and wonderful thing that my amazement outweighs my indignation, and that I beg you to continue, instead of stopping you there, as perhaps I ought to. And I obey you so much the more willingly, madame, went on Ruthven imperturbably, that this pardon is only granted on certain conditions, stated in these documents, destined to re-establish the tranquility of the state, so cruelly compromised by the errors that they are going to repair. 
and shall I be permitted, my lord, to read these documents, or must I, allured by my confidence in those who present them to me, sign them with my eyes shut? No, madame, Ruthven returned. The secret council desire, on the contrary, that you acquaint yourself with them, for you must sign them freely. Read me these documents, my lord, for such a reading is, I think, included in the strange duties you have accepted. Lord Ruthven took one of the two papers that he had in his hand and read with the impassiveness of his usual voice the following. Summoned from my tenderest youth to the government of the kingdom and to the crown of Scotland, I have carefully attended to the administration, but I have experienced so much fatigue and trouble that I no longer find my mind free enough, nor my strength great enough to support the burden of affairs of state. Accordingly, and as divine favor has granted us a son whom we desire to see during our lifetime bear the crown which he has acquired by right of birth, we have resolved to abdicate, and we abdicate in his favor by these presents freely and voluntarily all our rights to the crown and to the government of Scotland, desiring that he may immediately ascend the crown, as if he were called to it by our natural death and not as the effect of our own will, and that our present abdication may have more complete and solemn effect, and that no one shall put forward the claim of ignorance. We give full powers to our trusty and faithful cousins, the Lords Lindsay of Byers and William Ruthven, to appear in our name before the nobility, the clergy and the burgesses of Scotland, of whom they will convoke an assembly at Stirling and to there renounce publicly and solemnly on our part all our claims to the crown and to the government of Scotland. Sign freely, and as the testimony of one of our last royal wishes in our castle of Loch Leven, the June 1567, the date was left blank. There was a moment's silence after the reading, then, Did you hear, madame? asked Ruthven. Yes, replied Mary Stuart. Yes, I have heard rebellious words that I have not understood, and I thought that my ears, that one has tried to accustom for some time to a strange language, still deceived me, and that I have thought for your honor, my Lord Ruthven, and my Lord Lindsay of Byers. Madame, answered Lindsay, out of patience at having kept silence so long, our honor has nothing to do with the opinion of a woman who has so ill known how to watch over her own. My lord, said Melville, risking a word. Let him speak, Robert, returned the queen. We have in our conscience armor as well tempered as that with which Lord Lindsay is so prudently covered, although to the shame of justice we no longer have a sword. Continue, my lord the queen went on, turning to Lord Ruthven. Is this all that my subjects require of me? A date and a signature? Ah, doubtless it is too little, and this second paper which you have kept in order to proceed by degrees probably contains some demand more difficult to grant than that of yielding to a child scarcely a year old a crown which belongs to me by birth rate, and to abandon my scepter to take a distaff.
The other paper, replied Ruthven, without letting himself be intimidated by the tone of bitter irony adopted by the Queen, is the deed by which your grace confirms the decision of the secret council which has named your beloved brother, the Earl of Murray, regent of the kingdom. Indeed, said Mary, the secret council thinks it needs my confirmation to an act of such slight importance and my beloved brother, to bear it without remorse, needs that it should be I who add a fresh title to those of Earl of Mar and of Murray that I have already bestowed upon him. But one cannot desire anything more respectful and touching than all this, and I shall be very wrong to complain. My lords, continued the queen, rising and changing her tone, Return to those who have sent you, and tell them that to such demands Mary Stuart has no answer to give. Take care, madame, responded Ruthven, for I have told you it is only on these conditions that your pardon can be granted you. And if I refuse this generous pardon, asked Mary, what will happen? I cannot pronounce beforehand, madame, but your grace has enough knowledge of the laws, and above all of the history of Scotland and England, to know that murder and adultery are crimes for which more than one queen has been punished with death. And upon what proofs could such a charge be founded, my lord? Pardon my persistence, which takes up your precious time, but I am sufficiently interested in the matter to be permitted such a question. The proof, madame, returned Ruthven, there is but one, I know, but that one is unexceptionable. It is the precipitate marriage of the widow of the assassinated with the chief assassin, and the letters which have been handed over to us by James Balfour, which prove that the guilty persons had united their adulterous hearts before it was permitted them to unite their bloody hands. My lord, cried the queen, do you forget to certain repast given in an Edinburgh tavern by this same Bothwell, to those same noblemen who treat him today as an adulterer and a murderer? Do you forget that at the end of that meal, and on the same table at which he had been given, a paper was signed to invite that same woman to whom today you make the haste of her new wedding a crime, to leave off a widow's mourning to reassume a marriage robe? For if you have forgotten it, my lords, which would do no more honor to your sobriety than to your memory, I undertake to show it to you, I who have preserved it, and perhaps if we search well, we shall find among the signatures the names of Lindsay of Byers and William Ruthwen. O noble Lord Harry's, cried Mary, loyal James Melville, you alone were right then, when you threw yourselves at my feet entreating me not to conclude this marriage, which, I see it clearly today, was only a trap set for an ignorant woman by perfidious advisers or disloyal lords. Madame, cried Ruthven, in spite of his cold impassivity beginning to lose command of himself, while Lindsay was given the most noisy and less equivocal signs of impatience. Madame, all these discussions are beside our aim. I beg you to return to it then, and inform us if, your life and honor guaranteed, you consent to abdicate the crown of Scotland. And what safeguard should I have that the promise you here make me will be kept? Our word, madame, proudly replied Ruthven. Your word, my lord, 
is a very feeble pledge to offer when one so quickly forget one's signature. Have you not some trifle to add to it, to make me a little easier then I should be with it alone? Enough, Ruthwen, enough, cried Lindsay. Do you not see that for an hour this woman answers our proposals only with insults? Yes, let us go, said Ruthwen, and thank yourself only, madame, for the day when the thread breaks which holds the sword suspended over your head. My lords, cried Melville, my lords, in heaven's name, a little patience, and forgive something to her who, accustomed to command, is today forced to obey. Very well, said Lindsay, turning around. Stay with her then, and try to obtain by your smooth words what is refused to our frank and loyal demand. In a quarter of an hour we shall return. Let the answer be ready in a quarter of an hour. With these words the two noblemen went out, leaving Melville with the queen, and one could count their footsteps from the noise that Lindsay's great sword made in resounding on each step on the staircase. Scarcely were they alone, then Melville threw himself at the queen's feet. Madame, said he, you remarked just now that Lord Harry's and my brother had given your majesty advice that you repented, not having followed. Well, madame, reflect on that. I in my turn give you, for it is more important than the other, for you will regret with still more bitterness not having listened to it. Ah, you do not know what may happen. You are ignorant of what your brother is capable. It seems to me, however, returned the queen, that he has just instructed me on that head. What more will he do than he has done already? A public trial? Oh, it is all I ask. Let me only plead my cause, and we shall see what judges will dare to condemn me. But that is what they will take good care not to do, madame, for they would be mad to do it when they keep you here in this isolated castle, in the care of your enemies, having no witness but God, who avenges crime but who does not prevent it. Recollect, madame, what Machiavelli has said, a king's tomb is never far from his prison. You come of a family in which one dies young, madame, and almost always of a sudden death. Two of your ancestors perished by steel, and one by poison. Oh, if my death were sudden and easy, cried Mary, yes, I should accept it as an expiation for my faults, for I am proud when I compare myself with others, Melville. I am humble when I judge myself. I am unjustly accused of being an accomplice of Darnley's death, but I am justly condemned for having married Bothwell. Time presses, madame, time presses, cried Melville, looking at the sand which placed on the table was marking the time. They are coming back, they will be here in a minute, and this time you must give them an answer. Listen, madame, and at least profit by your situation as much as you can. You are alone here with one woman, without friends, without protection, without power. An abdication signed at such a juncture will never appear to your people to have been freely given, but will always pass as having been torn from you by force. And if need be, madame, if the day comes when such a solemn declaration is worth something, well, then you will have two witnesses of the violence done you. The one will be Mary Seaton, and the other, he added in a low voice and looking uneasily about him, the other will be Robert Melville. 
Hardly had he finished speaking when the footsteps of the two nobles were again heard on the staircase, returning even before the quarter of an hour had elapsed. A moment afterwards the door opened and Ruthven appeared, while over his shoulder was seen Lindsay's head. Madame, said Ruthven, we have returned. Has your grace decided? We come for your answer. Yes, said Lindsay, pushing aside Ruthven, who stood in his way, and advancing to the table, yes, an answer, clear, precise, positive, and without dissimulation. You are exacting, my lord, said the queen. You would scarcely have the right to expect that from me if I were in full liberty on the other side of the lake and surrounded with a faithful escort, but between these walls, behind these bars, in the depth of this fortress, I shall not tell you that I sign voluntarily, lest you should not believe it. But no matter. You want my signature? Well, I am going to give it to you. Melville, pass me the pen. But I hope, said Lord Ruthven, that your grace is not counting on using your present position one day in argument to protest against what you are going to do. The queen had already stooped to write. She had already set her hand to the paper when Ruthven spoke to her. But scarcely had he done so than she rose up proudly and letting fall the pen. My lord, said she, what you asked of me just now was but an abdication pure and simple, and I was going to sign it. But if to this abdication is joined this marginal note, then I renounce of my own accord and as judging myself unworthy the throne of Scotland. I would not do it for the three united crowns that I have been robbed of in turn. Take care, madame, cried Lord Lindsay, seizing the queen's wrist with the steel gauntlet and squeezing it with all his angry strength. Take care, for our patience is at an end. We could easily end by breaking what would not bend. The queen remained standing, and although a violent flush had passed like a flame over her countenance, she did not utter a word and did not move. Her eyes only were fixed with such a great expression of contempt on those of the rough baron that he, ashamed of the passion that had carried him away, let go the hand he had seized and took a step back. Then, raising her sleeve and showing the violet marks made on her arm by Lord Lindsay's steel gauntlet. This is what I expected, my lords, said she, and nothing prevents me any longer from signing. Yes, I freely abdicate the throne and crown of Scotland, and there is the proof that my will has not been forced. With these words, she took the pen and rapidly signed the two documents, held them out to Lord Ruthven, and bowing with great dignity, withdrew slowly into her room, accompanied by Mary Seaton. Ruthwen looked after her, and when she had disappeared, It doesn't matter, he said. She has signed, and although the means you employed, Lindsay, may be obsolete enough in diplomacy, it is not the less efficacious, it seems. No joking, Ruthwen, said Lindsay, for she is a noble creature, and if I had dared, I should have thrown myself at her feet to ask her forgiveness. There is still time, replied Ruthven, and Mary, in her present situation, will not be severe upon you. Perhaps she has resolved to appeal to the judgment of God to prove her innocence, and in that case a champion such as you might well change the face of things. Do not joke, Ruthven, 
Lindsay replied a second time with more violence than the first, for if I were as well convinced of her innocence as I am of her crime, I tell you that no one should touch a hair of her head, not even the regent. The devil, my lord, said Ruthven, I did not know you were so sensitive to a gentle voice and a tearful eye. You know the story of Achilles' lance, which healed with its rust the wounds it made with the edge. Do likewise, my lord, do likewise. Enough, Ruthven, enough, replied Lindsay. You are like a corselet of Milan steel, which is three times as bright as the steel armor of Glasgow, but which is at the same time thrice as hard. We know one another, Ruthven, so an end to railleries or threats. Enough, believe me, enough. And after these words, Lord Lindsay went out first, followed by Ruthven and Melville, the first with his head high and affecting an air of insolent indifference, and the second sad, his brow bent, and not even trying to disguise the painful impression which this scene had made on him. History of Scotland by Sir Walter Scott, The Abbot, Historical Part. End of chapter 5